Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. Today's episode comes from a rare cassette tape that I found it almost discarded as I was organizing some of the media that I had at home. We have just moved to Indiana. So here we are in November 2023. I'm still organizing my office and library. I'm going through boxes of cassette tapes that cannot be easily listened to because I only have one cassette deck around. It's kind of hard now to listen to tapes and even CDs and even DVDs because you don't have these media transporters around. The tape was inauspiciously labeled Victor Kubik, the Soviet Union, July 21st, 1990, given at Ambassador Auditorium. I converted this tape to MP3 and listened to it. I cannot believe the history from 32 years ago that was on it brought back the memories of when I had gone to Russia many times. It covers what I thought might be a renaissance of doing the work of God in Russia. Russia is in the news as a villainous nation today as a result of their brutal attack on Ukraine. And so people don't really want to talk too much about this aspect of Russia, at least not now. My wife and I had just moved to Pasadena, California in May of 1990 to take on a new role at church administration. And this was my first time speaking to the church after arriving. So please now join me in going back more than 32 years. Today I'd like to talk about a subject that's very dear to me, and that is the Soviet Union. What's going on in the Soviet Union? My wife and I, Beverly and I, have just returned from a YOU trip from the USSR just two weeks ago. It was my fifth trip and her fourth. And people inevitably ask questions. How was your trip? And I have a standard 25 word or less answer that I respond to, but I said, well, wait till the Sabbath and I'll tell you more about what we had learned and what uh, we had seen. People ask us, why were you there? And inevitably, when are you moving there? Is a question that troubles me a little bit. There have been very interesting questions and inevitable questions about what are we doing now that the barriers of religion are falling away in Eastern Europe? What are we as a church doing? The Mormon church has moved into the Soviet Union, so have the Jehovah's Witnesses and others. There are many who have tapped what they look upon as a very good market. What have we done as a church in the Soviet Union? Will we have a Russian work? Will we have a Feast of Tabernacles? Well, I can categorically say that I don't know the answer to these questions. But I can tell you what we have done so far and what doors have opened to us or what apparent doors, you might say, have opened to us behind the Iron Curtain and more so in the Soviet Union. People have had a lot of questions because we've had the producers from radio and television Leningrad who have come to visit the campus and spent a good part of two weeks here. In fact, just a month ago, they sat right here in services and were awed by what they had seen. They were, came to the morning service and heard Mr. Tom Pickett give the sermon. And they commented about the warmth and friendliness of the people. And they're very interested in what we possibly could do for them. Before I talk to you about what we had specifically seen and done, I'd like to give you a few 
facts about the Soviet Union, just to help you understand a little bit about the country. I have no time, obviously, to give a whole lecture about the USSR, about its people, about its size, but I do want to give you just a little bit of information. This nation, a powerful nation, has been the balance of power for the United States since World War II. It occupies one-sixth of the land's Earth's surface, or one-sixth of the land on the Earth. It's a, been a feared and misunderstood nation. It's been feared because it is a world power, possessing rockets, possessing nuclear energy, and has them poised at our families. Churchill described the Soviet Union as an enigma, as a riddle, as a mystery. We've heard that quote, I'm just paraphrasing the quote, oftentimes. The nation is huge. When you are in Moscow, Vladivostok, which is on the East Coast, is further away from Moscow than New York is to the West. The nation spans nine time zones. The nation is composed of many ethnic groups and nearly 160 different languages are represented in the Soviet Union. There are 15 republics, very roughly analogous to states of the Union, which are slowly coming apart. The largest of the republics is Russia, which is not synonymous with the USSR. The USSR is the union of 15 Soviet socialist republics. Now less has less than half the total population, which is approaching 290 million. It also has the republics of the Ukraine, which had been a nation, sovereign at one time, and one that also was interested in sovereignty now that Lithuania and Estonia and Latvia have expressed interest besides the others. We are seeing an unbelievable phenomenon that we could not have believed just a few short years ago about what's happening in the Soviet Union. Then there are the Central Asian republics. When Dr. Hay and I visited there in 1967, he was most interested in these and the lifestyle of the people in Central Asia. Uzbek, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, the Kyrgyz, Tajikistan, which is north of Iran, and then you have the republics in the south, the one where there have been recent troubles, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Armenia. The biggest percentage of the population, however, is the Slavic group of peoples, which is a very notable group of peoples that not only lives in the Soviet Union, but also comprises the population of the nations of Poland, of Bulgaria, and some of the other countries in Western Europe. Who are these people? Where do they come from? And what is our special interest in them? Historians admit that the Slavs came from the Sarmatians. Sarmatians were a people that, of course, when you look at any history of the world, whose footsteps lead back to the Middle East. In Genesis chapter 10 and verse 1, we read in the chapter known as the Table of Nations, about peoples that began to populate the earth after Noah's flood. In Genesis chapter 10 and verse 1, now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We know those three gentlemen. And unto them were 
sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, these are the ones we're interested in because these, the people in the Soviet Union today, are the descendants primarily from this particular son of Noah. Gomer and Magog, and we see here a few peoples coming up here, a few sons, who have interesting names. Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. There was a city just west of Odessa in the Ukraine today, north of the Black Sea, that was settled right after the flood, the city of Tyrus. Meshach, the people of Moscow and that part of the Soviet Union of Russia are the people of Meshach. Tubal, we have the city of Tobolsk in central Russia. Looking at the names of these people, we see that they had descended from these particular sons of Japheth. In Psalm chapter 120 and verse 5, we have another reference to Meshach, which is quite interesting, given some of the dealings that the people of Israel have had with the people of Meshach. Psalm 120 and verse 5. Psalm 120 and verse 5. David is lamenting. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach. All do I wish that I didn't have to deal with these people. And why is he saying this? My soul has long dwelt, verse 6, with him that hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for, more, for war. Verse 1, he says, In my distress I cried unto the Lord, he heard me, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. This is part of the enigma that we have, and part of the mystery of dealing with the Russian peoples. When our nation has been at war, when we fought World War II, and when we fought in World War I, who were our allies? It was the people of Russia. They are the ones who supported us. Even during the Civil War, it was the nation of Russia who gave support, or lent its support to the people of the Union. When we're at peace, they are a hostile people. You can't figure them out. Why do they act that way? And to this day, I still can't figure out what's happened after World War II. Why are they reacting the way they are towards our people after the friendship that we had shown them after World War II? But that's the way it's happened. It's been part of that enigma. But David says that when I am for peace, they are for war and deliver my soul from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Telling the truth has not been one of their strong points. In the United Nations, how many treaties have they broken? How many times have they spoken one thing and have done another? How many times have they knowingly lied? Let's take a look at some of the modern day history that will give just a quick synopsis of it because it's quite interesting as to how the nation that became Russia was formed. The Sarmatians moved in, the Slavic peoples, but then also peoples from Scandinavia moved down, known as the Varagians. These are the Vikings who didn't go west, but the Vikings who went east. And they settled on the Dnieper River in the 700s AD, after the city of Kiev was formed. 
and formed a city-state that was called Rus, where we get the modern-day name for Russia. Some of the notable princes, as they were called, of Rus were Prince Oleg, like in Zajac. Oleg was one of the notable princes in Kiev, and he even went and fought against Constantinople. Following him was Vladimir, a very important prince, because under his reign, the nation was converted, so to speak, to Christianity in the year 988. In fact, when I traveled to the Soviet Union two years ago, the country was celebrating the millennium. It was interesting to come to Russia and to see all these signs for the millennium. I thought we kind of had the corner on the market of uh, that particular uh, phrase. But the Russians were celebrating the millennium. It was he and his mother, Olga, that were interested in a new religion. They were basically pagans and had many different kinds of gods. And so they invited the Jews, they invited the Muslims and Christians. And they talked to all three of these groups as to which religion they ought to convert to. The Muslims had their good points and bad points. Multiple wives was good. Wine, forbidden wine, no. So that was turned down very quickly, <laughs> knowing how the Russians and Ukrainians had become. But Christianity seemed a good middle-of-the-world religion between Judaism and between Mohammedanism. And so the whole city, state of Rus, of Kiev, was baptized. And all the pagan gods and idols were thrown down into the Dnieper River. And the whole nation was brought down to the Dnieper River and baptized in 988 AD. This was before the big schism, before the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church separated. And so the nation then became Christian. There's a very interesting museum in Leningrad. If you have a chance to visit Leningrad, go to the Re Museum of Religion and Atheism. And there you will see a painting depicting the conversion, the baptism of this nation of Rus. Because they tell you the rest of the story. It shows many people being baptized. It also shows many people being burned at the stake for refusing baptism. And so the nation was forcefully made into a Christian nation. Kiev was a cultural center for 100, 150 years afterwards. In fact, one of the son or grandson of Vladimir Yaroslav. His daughter, Anna, married King Louis I of France. And Kiev was a civilized area where there was learning, many churches. And his daughter married King Louis I of France, who didn't even know how to write. He couldn't even sign his name. The kingdom, city-state of Rus, was very closely tied into Constantinople. But as the fortunes of Constantinople went down, so did those of Kiev. And soon a dark ages came across Rus. Hordes of Mongols, Tartars, Khazars, the hordes of the east came and destroyed the city of Kiev. And actually for many years, there were very few people who lived in the area of the Ukraine. But simultaneously with the fall or with the decline of Kiev to the south, the 
duchy or the city-state of Moscow began to grow in the north. And Moscow became a power, and the two were the two big Slavic groups of nations, as Kiev was declining and as Moscow was growing. But Moscow, too, was overrun by the Tartars, by the Mongolian hordes. In fact, in two different periods of history, the Mongolians actually occupied and ruled from Moscow in the 1300s and in the 1500s. In the 1500s, Tsar Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan the Awesome is what it means, built a cathedral, St. Basil's Cathedral, which is one of the most scenic sites in Moscow, to commemorate seven battles, or there are seven domes on the church that commemorate seven battles in which he defeated the Mongolians. And after that time, there have been no influences or any other incursions by the Mongolians on the Russian people. Ivan the Terrible was one of the very first of the Romanov kings, and his lineage and his family continued all the way through the Tsars, which derives its title from Caesar, all the way to 1917, when Tsar Nicholas II was assassinated and the communists came into power. Just one small interesting story about Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan the Terrible, and it's a lesson for speaking out of turn sometimes. He had architects design St. Basil's Cathedral. And after they had built it, it was such a beautiful church that he said, can you ever build another church just like this? And they said, well, I guess we could. And he put their eyes out so they could never do it. So when people egg you for, for compliments, just be careful what you say, especially when speaking to a Russian. <laughs> one of the most notable rulers of the Russians was Peter the Great. He's the one that catapulted Russia into the affairs of Western Europe. Before that, it was a nation which lived in a cave. They had no outlets to the ocean. They had one tiny port, Arkhangelsk, at the White Sea, in which they could trade. But to the south, the Turks occupied the Black Sea area, and the Swedes controlled the Baltic. And Peter the Great started the Twenty Years' War, in which he wrested the area where Leningrad is today from the Swedes in 1703 and started building a city. And in 1711, he moved the capital from Moscow to what was, I should I said Leningrad, he didn't call it Leningrad, he didn't know Lenin too well at that time, but St. Petersburg is what he called the city. The Swedes declined in power and the Russians grew and constantly encroached into the West. Other rulers and historical events that are of note would be, the, would be Catherine the Great, Napoleon's invasion of 1812, which was very similar to the invasion uh, 100 and some years later by Hitler in the Barbarossa campaign, and of course the revolution of 1917 and the onset of communism, and really one extra special area of history that's being looked at is the reign of Stalin, where he killed millions and millions of people in transforming an agricultural nation into industrial nation in less than one generation. Today, one cannot understand the present day Russian mindset unless they appreciate what that nation got, had gone through in World War II. 
what's known as the Great Patriotic War. The people of the Soviet Union are still traumatized to this day because of what happened in World War II, and they think often of the Great Patriotic War. In fact, one reason why I live in this country is as a result of my parents being refugees, not returning back to the Soviet Union after World War II and finding a home in the United States. When my mother died seven years ago, or six years ago, I looked among her personal letters and found one that I'd like to read to you. Somehow it struck home to me as to the kind of society that she was thrust from and only one of tens of millions of stories of what people had gone through in World War II. The letter was dated June 7th, 1943. Now, my mother was at the time of the beginning of the war when the Germans attacked in their Operation Barbarossa, when they attacked the Ukraine and, of course, all of Russia and moved all the way to Stalingrad. She was right in the middle of all the fighting that took place. And the Germans, when they came into the different villages, they needed labor back in Germany to operate the factories. And so they went into every household and asked that one teenager from every family would go and work in Germany. They were told that it would be for six months or so. And my mother willingly went and worked in Germany, but it was 23 years before she returned home. But after she was taken to Germany and as her village, or as her city, it's actually more of a city than a village, changed hands between the Germans and Russians six times actually during the war, her brother, Victor, wrote her this letter. And this is a letter that I found among her personal things after she died. I know that my parents talked a lot about the war and about what they had gone through, but we just weren't interested. But after both my parents died, I took a special interest in their lives. June 7th, 1943, greetings, dear Nina. In the first lines of our short letter, we give you greetings from your family. Nina, are you all right? Uh, my brother is still back in the Ukraine, and my mother is working in a German factory. And this is right in the heat of the war. You write that you are getting lonely living on foreign soil, but you're not the only one separated from their family. Many people are finding themselves in this condition. We are not receiving your letters. In fact, I'm surprised that any letters went back and forth between Germany and the Ukraine. It was while the Germans were occupying that some mail would come through. In 1943, we received only two postcards from you, one dated January 20th and the other dated February 8th. You are writing about your brother Alex. We have not heard from him in two years. Surprisingly, in our family, all the men that went to war, all my uncles, every single one of them returned alive. But of those who were age 19 that went into the service during World War II in the Soviet Union, only one in 100 returned alive. If we live, we will meet you again. The weather has been good for growing. The gardens look good, and we will have things to eat in the winter. The Russians came in February, but the Germans returned in March. On the front here, there has been no shooting, but in May of 1944, many people in other neighboring villages died. The land is covered with blood, and the end of the war is not in sight. We're tired of the war. You said that you'd like to see your flowers and homeland again. That would be nice, but the land has been ravaged by war. 
I think often of your cheerful smile and your kind words to us, my loving sister. Mom and Dad and Tonya live, pardon me, work on the collective farm, and I work on the railroad. Please write to us how you are eating and are the Germans good to you. We have not been receiving your letters. Please give greetings to your friends with whom you're working. Just kind of brought out to me the reality of what my mother was going through at the age of 17. Then I got a letter from my Aunt Tonya, who I actually saw a few weeks ago in Stalingrad, or now Volgograd. She said, my dear nephews and nieces, she says, in the years of the war, our village changed hands six times between the Russians and Germans. The oldest and youngest were evacuated. Your mother Nina stayed where all the fighting took place. I still remember one moment when your mother was leading a cow home and had a frightened look on her face after the Germans bombed our village. Then the Germans took our village and took your mother to Germany. And my dad's story is also very similar. He was a teenager, just 17. And when the Germans came, they also took him to work in Germany. And my mother and father later met towards the end of the war, were married immediately after, and I was born and lived in a displaced persons camp for almost two years before my parents found a home in the United States. But in the Soviet Union, remembering the war is a national obsession. 20 to 30 million people perished in World War II. Half the housing was destroyed. And in the Russian mind, it's as though the Americans never even entered the war. They considered the American sacrifice as being slight, as being small. Americans lost 350,000 men or so. The Russians lost 20 to 30 million people in World War II. Housing has still not caught up to demand. And oftentimes, a young couple will wait 10, 12, 14, 15 years before they are allocated an apartment. One thing that our youth, after returning from the Soviet Union, commented, and I've had several letters from them since returning home, as to how much they appreciate what we have in the United States. We went to the homes, or more accurately, the apartments of our hosts, producers in the Soviet Union, and saw how they lived. They have very small, meager apartments. We have it so good in this country. You're allocated an apartment which is one room less than the number of people in your household, excluding the kitchen. So if you have two children, mother and father, you have three rooms. If you have one child, you have two rooms. And the producer he had a two-room apartment and a tiny kitchen, which is not even counted as a room. One room was for his child, and the other room was living room, bedroom, dining room. Everything else that would have to happen in a household was take, would take place in that room. And he's lived there now for a year and a half, and he is as happy as he can be. If only we could be as satisfied. Our youth was very impressed by all the war cemeteries in the Soviet Union, especially the one at Stalingrad. I call it Stalingrad because it brings back more the meaning of that city. It's called Volgograd right now. The city has a huge monument that was designed by the same man that designed the monument or the man beating a sword into a plowshare. It's a monument that's 272 feet high. It's a statue of Mother Russia, and where, which commemorates 
the victory of the Russians over the Germans. And our youth, I saw, was very sobered by what they had seen. The Russians respect their war dead with a very special respect. Wedding couples who just get married, the first thing they do after the marriage service is performed is to take a tour around the city and put wreaths at eternal flames. Some cemeteries, like one we had seen, had one grave marker for every 14,000 dead. It's just awesome to see the losses that took place in World War II, and that has been burned into the minds of those people. Well, my parents came to this country when I was two years old. I didn't learn English until I was five years old, and I spoke Ukrainian first, and then I learned some Russian when I went to the University of Minnesota. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Radio Leningrad, because we've had the producers visit here on campus. Mr. Tkach had sent my wife and I to Leningrad to look at the overtures that these people had made to us about putting the World Tomorrow program on the air. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about this. Some of this has been in the worldwide news, but I'd like to share some of this with you. Back about a year and a half ago, a young lady in the San Jose Church, or I believe now she attends in San Francisco, Darlene Redaway, a graduate student at Stanford University, was studying at what we call LSU, Leningrad State University, and where through a mutual acquaintance, she met a young man called Ivan Salmaksov, who works at the radio station. He's quite a brilliant young man, He's a producer of his own radio program. He's likable. His mother is half Jewish and half Russian, and his father is half Jewish and half Russian. And he introduced her, Darlene Redaway, to Valery Kostin, who was the senior producer for youth programming on Radio Leningrad. And in discussions, they had talked about the world tomorrow and about her beliefs, and she had shown them some of our magazines. Ivan Salmaksov visited the United States in 1988 for three months. He saw the world tomorrow on the air. And he attended one of our services in San Jose. He asked many questions about our beliefs. A lot of questions as to why we believe what we do, what is the basis for our beliefs, and why we do the things that we do. Well, when he went back to Leningrad, he passed on a lot of the information about the Worldwide Church of God to his superiors. Now. At that time, the producers at Radio Leningrad, which had become quite independent in just last week, uh, the media in the Soviet Union has separated itself at enough distance from the government to where the media can call its own shots and be able to dictate or be able to authorize its own programming. The radio station was looking for fresh programming, breaking away from party propaganda basically, in what was dictated by the government. And the people that we had met were the producers of one of three divisions of Radio Leningrad. The radio station has three divisions, the division of propaganda, the division of adult programming, and the division of youth programming. And they told us that they were looking for material that would be of the kind that their youth could relate to. They were saying that they were living in a wasteland, that they were living in a desert of information, that they had nothing on which they could 
really have the youth relate to something of their past or values. Not that they had no values, but they just didn't have anything since the communists have been the ones educating the country since 1917. As a producer told me, he says, you have at least, even if your youth does not choose to accept Christ in your land, it's at least available. You can go to a street corner to a church and find God or some philosophy or read about it. Because we have nothing, and we're looking. We're looking for something that our youth can sink its teeth into. Because our youth are valueless, without values. The issues and the problems that they have, the same ones that we have been speaking about. And they were very impressed with the youth magazine and with the Plain Truth magazine. And they wanted to see for themselves what the World Tomorrow program was like. In fact, one of the producers told me, he says, we have finally caught up to Americans in one area, and that's divorce. So after the feast last year, Mr. Tkach asked if I would go and talk to them and just see what it is that they were looking for. And uh, investigate the possibilities of some cooperative venture with them, possibly. Well, I was going there right after the feast in Czechoslovakia last year since I was in the area, but the earthquake in San Francisco hit, and that's the consulate that we were dealing with, with the Russians. And so for four days, there was no communication, we couldn't get a visa, and I came back to the United States, and I thought, well, God has spoken. Obviously, it's a fluke. Obviously, we're not supposed to do anything there. But then they sent us another telegram asking us to come and visit them and invited us from the radio station. This time, we went. My wife and Darlene Redaway and myself went to Leningrad and stayed there for six days, December 1st through December 6th. And I had a chance to meet all these three individuals. Ivan Salmaksov, and his superior, Valery Kostin, plus the head of the department, Irina Trodnikova, who is the head of the department for programming for children and youth. And since we had seen her just December, she has now moved on to television and is the head of commercial broadcasting or advertising on, radio, pardon me, on Leningrad television. The first night, or the first night after we had arrived, they took us out to dinner, and Valery Kostin just drilled me with questions about our church, asked about all kinds of beliefs, explain the Sabbath. And then he said, explain your doctrine of the kingdom of God. Then he asked me, why do you believe what you do about the Trinity? And I found that the more honest and the more straightforward I gave him answers, the more satisfied he was. With the Trinity, he started asking about why we are so averse to it. And I said, well, we believe that God wants to establish a family and add many to his family. The Trinity is a closed system. I said, ultimately, man will become God. He says, no, don't tell me that. He says, that's too much for me to understand right now. I said, fine. I says, we'll get to that maybe at a later time. He said that we are very interested in airing your program, but he says, I see two problems. He says, you do appear a bit Jewish. <laughs> and he said, the other is that there might be some adverse reaction from the Russian Orthodox Church, which is now making a comeback. But he said, that's no problem. 
He said that, I like what you teach. I said that we would not be in our programming talking about the Sabbath on every program. They were interested in our programs about alcoholism, about youth, and anything that would really relate to youth. In fact, one of the broadcasts that I took, the World Tomorrow programs I took, was about alcoholism. And I just hadn't previewed it before seeing it. It was sent to me by Federal Express. I stuck it in my suitcase and went to Leningrad with it. And they didn't have anything, any way to play it. Surprised that a radio or a television station, or at that time the radio station, didn't have a VCR. So we brought a video camera with us, an amateur one, and a little six-inch television monitor and played three programs through the video camera and played it on this little six-inch monitor. And they had all the producers all sitting there looking at this little six-inch screen. It was very interesting. And they started playing the program on alcoholism, one that began in the United States. The average per capita consumption of alcohol is whatever, 4.2 gallons per person. In Great Britain, it's 6.3. I'm not sure if these are the exact numbers. But in the Soviet Union, it's a whopping 12.4 gallons. <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe I should have chosen a different program to at least get a better foot in the door. And they said, that's right. He says, we need to tell our people about that. We need to tell our people about that. It actually was something that impressed them. They said, we do have a problem with alcohol. While we were at the radio station, they put on a special performance by the Leningrad Radio Children's Choir just for the three of us especially come to the radio station and perform in the mezzanine of this huge building, which, had, uh, which was a Japanese house of trade before World War I, and now is where Radio Leningrad is housed. And they had the choir sing a very special program for us. Then one evening, they interviewed me on the radio. I want to thank Mike Snyder very much for giving me all the information I needed. I'm not the interviewable type. In fact, I run from this type of thing, and I end up with my nose in it more than I want to. In fact, I'm trying, I don't like to be interviewed at all. Only my wife interviews me. I can't even answer her questions exactly <laughs> accurately. But they interviewed me for about 20 minutes on tape, maybe 20, 25 minutes on tape, and then played about a five-minute segment of it, the questions that they wanted answered on the air. We had a program which is very popular. It comes on at 10 o'clock at night. It's like a 60 minutes type program where they have uh, different features. It's called the Nevskaya Volna, which means the Neva wave. Neva is the river that goes through Leningrad. They introduced me as pastor Victor Kubik from the United States after they played this dour Russian religious music, you know, to do, 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 you know, very, very sad. <laughs> and, then, and now we have a very special guest from the United States, pastor Victor Kubik. It just sounded very funny. I played it for Mr. Carlson in Germany on the way back, and his wife just absolutely split with <laughs> laughter, with her origins being back there, too. But they asked me questions about our church, our media, how we address our social problems, and exactly what do we as a church do to solve the problems of society. And they asked about the goals and purposes of our trip. The question that they were really interested in asking was, how is it that nearly 500 denominations get along in your country? And I kind of waffled a little bit about that, but they were very, very interested in that question. They said, we only have 
10 or 20 churches open in our city, and how is it that you have all your people get along so well? I said, they don't really get along too well, but we do have laws that protect people from killing each other, at least. <laughs> that, uh, that was not what I said on the air, though. When they aired this little segment on the air, they said that they had a higher than average listening audience because just before my segment, they were advertising a, the segment that appeared before the Worldwide Church of God section about extrasensory perception. And everybody wanted to hear that. And then I was right after that. Now they had scary music on the first parts and they had this church music introducing uh, my section. But the program was broadcast to a population of 50 million, including Latvia, Estonia, and uh, Latvia. And I was told that about 10 million people listened to it. At that time of night, television gets boring, they say, and radio was listened to quite a bit, and it's cabled in. Uh, new apartment blocks get built, and radio was just plain cabled in. My cousin Olga in Leningrad, she heard the program. I asked her if she would listen to it and give me her feelings. And she said, I'm just really, she said, first of all, I didn't know you were a minister, she said. <laughs> a pastor? She says, you don't seem like one. And then she said that I really appreciated what you had to say and that you don't sound like you're self-serving, like you want to get something from us. It sounds like you genuinely want to do something in the Soviet Union to help our people. The last day that we were at the radio station, they had a funeral for one of the longtime announcers. And they invited us to come to the funeral, which was right in the mezzanine there of the radio station. And I just kindly asked the producer, what did she die of? Oh, alcoholism. I said, OK, very good. We came to her funeral. And she was uh, very interesting how the Russians uh, have their people on display. They're just almost out of the coffin, out of the casket. You know, they just are propped up. Looks like She looked like through the whole service that she was going to get up and, and walk. They did send a letter to Mr. Tkach, and I'd like to read you parts of it. She handed this to me at the airport just before we left. The head producer, Ina Prudnikova, who had been here on campus, she said, Dear respected Mr. Tkach, he says, allow us to thank you for the attention that you afford our land. We'd also like to thank your colleagues, with whom we spent several days in Leningrad, for their warmth and sincerity and for the joy of our contact. This is a bridge of friendship between our lands. The business meetings with your colleagues have allowed us to delineate several avenues for our cooperative venture. Our goals, this is a statement I want you to pay attention to, our goals and your goals are identical. To restore morality, to compel people to think about eternal truths, said in good Russian style, to force people to think about eternal truths, <laughs> and to help them shun destructive habits. In the first step of our work, we would like to use your materials in our programs, and they have. I left the World Tomorrow programs there, left about oh, four, five, six videotapes, and they already have transcribed them to uh, Russian, and uh, they used bits and pieces of them on their programs, they recognized, as they said, no copyrights. We would like to use your materials in our programs and prepare programs based on your materials. In the future, we see the possibility of joint television and radio programs prepared by your journalists and ours. So they were interested in talking to us, and the material that we had struck a very warm chord with them. Interestingly enough, too, while we were in Leningrad, 
we met some people that we had first become acquainted with in Brno, Czechoslovakia, just a few months before. Right next to our hotel in Czechoslovakia, while we were at the feast, there was a Russian bus tour of lady engineers. It was a very interesting combination. Women engineers that were touring Czechoslovakia. And they happened to walk into our hotel and uh, started talking to some of the brethren uh, who were uh, at the feast. And uh, some of our people, I wasn't there at first, but they summoned me because I, of my Russian. And they were very interested in what this group was doing and what this meeting was all about, the feast meeting. And they even walked into our special social that we had that night. We had a big band that came from Prague and they were a dance band and they were playing and everybody was decked out in their formal wear. And they walked in and they said, this must be a movie that's being made. <laughs> anyway, we sat in the lobby for about two hours and talked and they asked about who are these people? Why are you doing what you're doing? And we just told them a church festival and that this was a very special evening and that we had services every day, etc. And this one lady, young lady says, can you get me a Russian Bible? Well, I said, well, I don't have one right now, but I may be in Leningrad and I'll get you one. So when I went to Leningrad two months later, I did bring her a Bible and she brought several of her friends over to our hotel and we talked to them. This lady and the one that was with her, first, the second one was Jewish and she wanted to know more about our church. I thought, I said, wouldn't that be interesting if the first convert we had in the Soviet Union was Jewish? <laughs> well, she actually said, you know, when your church comes to Leningrad, I'll be the first to join, she said. I said, okay, I said, we'll see you maybe sometime <laughs> down the road. They were very open and they, they're very childlike and are very open in the way they express their feelings. She said, when your church comes to Leningrad, I'll be the first to join. To the Jew first than to the Gentile. <laughs> That's the way I felt about the young man that first came into contact with us from the of Leningrad, him being Jewish or being half Jewish and half Russian. God is working in that way, just the way he did in the days of the Apostle Paul. Well, I did ask Mr. Tkach as to what he wanted to do. Now, we could not accept their offer of going on the air. I can't imagine what would happen if we would go on the air in Leningrad and have 50,000, 100,000 people request the plain truth in English. And then what if there were people who wanted to be visited? And what if there were others who wanted further contact? How in the world would we do it? Well, right now we really could not do an adequate job. We don't have the support. We don't have a Russian-speaking ministry. And it is a land that is thirsting and hungering for knowledge. And until a time comes when we do have that kind of support or we feel comfortable that with whatever we come out with that we would have the support, we really can't do it. And Mr. Koch sent them a very nice letter saying that we thank you for your invitation. We would like to continue maintaining an open door with you, but we cannot take you up on what you're doing. But we would like to, as a sign of our continual friendship, invite you to the United States. And so we invited these three individuals, and they spent, let's see, what was it, 10, 11, 12 days almost here in Pasadena. And the story about their trip is told in the 
worldwide news. Of course, we got the first things out of the way that Russians need to do when they come to Los Angeles, and that is the tour of Disneyland, which <laughs> is something that to me now is getting to be a chore. I've taken the whole Kirov Ballet to Disneyland, and now these three Russians, and they just loved it. They just lamented the fact that their children couldn't be with them to see it. Took them to the top of Mount Wilson, and that man producer, Valery Kostin, who had just been to Azerbaijan and to Georgia just a few weeks before, covering the turbulence down there for Radio Leningrad, was commenting so much how Mount Wilson looked so much like the Caucasus. And he's quite a poet. He recited poetry as we were going down the hill. Just very, very open and uh, just very beautifully done. Very talented person. He's a songwriter. Uh, his one song, Krisilov, which means Pied Piper, which is a story about Gorbachev, became a national hit sung by Ala Pugacheva, which is like the Madonna uh, in Russia. <laughs> they were very impressed by, by the Ambassador College campus. They said, you could make a movie here. Uh, why the Russians are fascinated with movies, but they decided the perfect place for uh, a movie. One of the highlights for their stay was dinner at Mr. and Mrs. Gene Hogberg's, who invited them to their home. Uh, one evening, and they really appreciated being in an actual home setting and the hospitality shown them. They went the next day to tour editorial, and they came by Mr. Uh, Hogberg's office. And I don't know if you've seen Mr. Hogberg's office, but his desk is invisible. It's uh, <laughs> covered by many, many documents and papers. And it's, now there's a real editor. Everybody else's desk, they said, was too neat. But they wanted to tour, they wanted to interview anyone that uh, they could find. They walked on campus and they said, are those students, can we talk to them? We would like to interview them. And by chance, one time we were walking out of the student center, uh, we came across two students and we just asked them to sit down. They had a cameraman from TV here who filmed them while they were here for, the, for two different, on two different days that said, go ahead and film anything you want. And they interviewed these two young men who did an outstanding job in answering questions. I was really impressed. I couldn't have done it that way. I was just, just very, very pleased as to the depth of answering that these young men had about their life, of what they've learned here at college, of what they want to do with themselves. And the Russians were very impressed. Their interview will be in a TV special that they're going to have in Leningrad next month. Another of their highlights here was the interview they had with Mr. Hume. They really wanted to see Mr. Hume. They were asking me and bugging me about seeing Mr. Hume for the longest time. And I said, okay, I said, I'll call him. I'm sure that he'll be glad to answer your questions. And I told Mr. Hume, I says, please tell him exactly from the heart, exactly what we believe, because it's important to them. They, they asked me one time when they met some of our people here, I says, I know that those answers were from the head, but we want some answers from the heart. I said, okay, we'll get Mr. Hume, and we'll have him answer some questions. And they especially liked Mr. Hume because they had seen two or three of his programs and wanted to talk to somebody that they were at least familiar with by face. And so they asked them all kinds of questions about theology, about who we are, the future of the world, and of Russia. And Mr. Hume gave them an interview that big chunks of it will be broadcast in Leningrad. As I mentioned earlier, that uh, one of them came to our morning services and was impressed by the cheerfulness. 
that your people are so happy in church. You're supposed to be sad in church. <laughs> and I said, and was your speaker ever funny? You know, Mr. Tom Pickett. I said, boy, if Mr. Halford would have been speaking here, I don't know what, what would have <laughs> happened. <clears throat> then, the night before they left, they wanted to host a number of, uh, they wanted to have uh, a host a little reception for anybody who would want to drop in and see them. And so Mr. Ames and Mr. Halford and Mr. Hume uh, came by, and also uh, Ms. Debbie Armstrong and Ms. Tina Kuo and others came by and talked to the Russians the evening before they left. And the Russians were still full of questions. One of them, as I was sitting with Mr. Halford, said, I want to ask you a question about the New Testament. And he said, do you know the story about the trip that Christ took to Tyre in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 21? And I was thinking long and hard, okay, what trip is that? <laughs> you know the one where he said that I have to feed the people at my table first before I can give it to the extra food to the dogs? He said, are we those dogs? Are we Russians those dogs? Matthew 15, 21. Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. <clears throat> and behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a demon. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. He answered and said, I'm not sent unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, we had been talking about our identity and you know, who we were. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said, O woman, great is your faith. Are we the dogs? They said. I thought, what is Mr. Halford going to say? <laughs> well, he said, you know, you have to understand these dogs. You now, they were like family pets. You know, they weren't like dogs that you think of as being synonymous with, you know, homosexuals and that type of thing, which there are some negative connotations. And I said, yes, they did eat from the table, and Christ was pleased with their faith. And then I added later that you know, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the work to the Gentiles, etc., they were very satisfied with answers. But I was uh, touched by their perception and their knowledge of the New Testament. In fact, this producer, when I was at his home, uh, we had dinner at his home two weeks ago, he had uh, New Testament on his table. And some of them want me to send them Russian Bibles. After they left, a week after they left, back to the Soviet Union, we had our third YOU trip to the USSR. And we had the opportunity to spend two whole days with them while we were in Leningrad. This woman who is now on television, she's producing television commercials, and we saw some of her television commercials, which she said, I don't want you to see my commercials. She says, they're so terrible. And indeed, they were very primitive compared to what is seen over here. Uh, the first commercials that have come on television in Leningrad are commercials about an industrial plant. Uh, it shows these huge gears and these huge machines looking like turbines at Hoover Dam. And why they're advertising them, I don't know, but this Ivan Samoksov says, I'm going to wait till they go on sale. He's been in this country. 
for too long. And then after this ad for machinery, they had an ad for three lost dogs. And finally, it ended with a missing person ad. And one of the producers said, see how we value our people? People are last, the list. First we got the machinery, then the dogs, and then we have <laughs> lost persons. <clears throat> but Irina Pernikova told me that they have had several firms from the West come to the television station in Leningrad and have wanted to buy up all commercial time, just buy it all up for the future, for the next five years or so. And they wanted to put on advertising from Western firms of products that won't be produced in the Soviet Union for another two, three years. And one was from a manufacturer of tennis shoes who wanted to build up a name recognition in the Soviet Union. And she said, we don't want them. We're not going to sell out our time to Western firms. And then she said, we have had people come here who have wanted to put religious programming on. And she told me the names of some of the televangelists that have wanted them. She said, we don't want them. They're boring. We want Tom Pickett, she said. <laughs> they really liked Tom Pickett. She talked about that man again. What's happening in the Soviet Union right now is an absolute disaster economically. The, the country really is in a very vulnerable state. The lines are longer and they don't, aren't even moving. Commodities are in short supply. People are hoarding food, as you've seen on the news, and the spirit of the people is close to being broken. They're very vulnerable right now to moving here or there to whoever leader promises them the best. And some are beginning to make a move towards Boris Yeltsin. And we have to watch closely day by day as to what actually is happening. But the spirit of the Russian people is one that, yes, they're the ones who came up with the idea of one common united European house. And Europe has done well, especially their satellite countries. But they themselves are out in the cold. In stores, there is no meat, cheese, or eggs in many stores. The black market is thriving in the open, and the government seems to be doing nothing about it. Things are really in a very, very uh, precarious state in the Soviet Union. I want to make a few comments here in conclusion about some of the things about the Soviet people that we observed this time more than any time before. The people have a lot to learn, like we all do, but there are some things that some nations have to learn more than others. There's a phrase, you will become acquainted with Soviet service. There is none. There is no word for service that means the same word that service means in our country. The closest word to it, and the word is slujba, means servitude. And the country does not want to help itself. When the country goes under, especially as it's going right now, people take out their anger on one another. People are extremely rude to one another. They're very kind and very understanding and very hospitable to foreigners, but they are very rude to one another. I had an incident in Volgograd where our guide came, came into our hotel very late at night 
And after we put the kids to bed, several of us adults wanted to buy a bottle of champagne in the restaurant and just relax. Well, I asked the waiter, could we have a bottle of champagne? They were just closing, I understand. They said it was not possible. Well, I, I accepted that answer because that's the way they are. It could be sitting right there, all you do is pick it up and give it to you, but it's not possible. <laughs> I asked our guide to uh, come with me. I said, maybe you could just talk to this fellow. He says, it's no big deal. And we went to a lady who was sitting in a little back room there and asked her if we could buy a bottle of champagne. She started shrieking and shouting at him, called him a speculator and black marketeer and all kinds of things, and slammed the door in his face. And he just kind of took it. And I said, well, maybe we could try a different approach with her. Uh, let's say this. I forgot what we said. We opened the door again. And he started asking her again if we could just buy this bottle of champagne. She shouted something else and closed the door. Then third time, he opened the door and said, don't you ever talk that way to me. He says, if I would tell you what I'm thinking, you would be dead. So I thought, well, <laughs> people just don't really uh, have a few things to learn about being friendly. While we were in Leningrad last winter, my cousin Olga came to pick us up at the hotel to go back to her home. And we thought, we'll just take a taxi back to her home. And as we came to the taxi cab driver, he saw her as a Russian and me as a Westerner. And he told her, I will not take you. I will take this civilized man. I thought, me civilized? But it was so rude, I, I cannot believe as to how point blank and how ugly the rudeness is. And as my aunt has said, and she says, I'm becoming a believer again, talking about a believer in God. She says, our nation has been away from God so long that Satan has us in his grip so bad that he just doesn't want to let us go. We have a lot to learn, and we have a lot that we are lacking. One of the bright spots, and I'll conclude with this, and there's a lot more that I could say, is McDonald's. The reason that I end my sermon with this is because it's part of the re-education process that needs to come to the Soviet Union. Their problem is that they have had several generations of sullen, grumpy, murderous, horrible years in which they have really not been good to one another. McDonald's has come in, the McDonald's of Canada, has spent 14 years trying to get in, spent $50 million in development startup costs, and open up the first McDonald's. You walk into McDonald's in Moscow, there's a line. There are lines everywhere, but at least this one moves. And this one has something at the end of the line. <laughs> and this one has friendly people that ask you, may I help you? They even have a sign that says, may I help you? Unbelievable, I said, that's Russian? I guess that is possible to actually say those words in Russian. May I help you? as we picked up our Big Mac, our Big Mac, and walked to our table, they actually had a person who said, hey, let me clear the table for you here and sit down. We could not believe that this was right on Gorky Street in Moscow. They had gone through an extensive process of education to train people who would serve in that way. I'd like to read from a newspaper article here about the opening of this first McDonald's as to the training that these people had, and it shows how far they had drifted from common decency with one another. This was written back in January when that McDonald's opened. The grand opening is Wednesday, and 18-year-old Oleg Muhin is learning how to smile. <laughs> this man's name, though, troubles me. Muhin means of a fly. 
I don't know if that's a good name for an employee, but anyway. <clears throat> Here's his quote. We're supposed to smile all the time. People will think we've gone loony. <laughs> said Mookin, one of the 630 people hired to run McDonald's. They are also being drilled in such strange Western habits as actually greeting customers and saying, thank you. McDonald's is the first taste of what Mikhail Gorbachev's perestroika can offer. It is capitalism and consumerism in the middle of Moscow. It's Western efficiency, friendly service, a clean, brightly lighted place to eat. Things communism hasn't offered many Soviet citizens. The reason I say I'm going to end my sermon on McDonald's is because that's what this country, that's what that country needs. Somebody to educate them in courtesy, in service, in loving one another and loving God. It is a big market. Nearly 300 million people who have been cut off from God, from any access to him at all. There is a great work, I feel, someday. It will have to be done in warning these people and to show them that way. And God, in whichever way he chooses, in whichever way he does, will somehow have the witness go there. Perhaps these people will most of them not be able to have the education they need in this time. But they need a total restructuring of their minds, of their attitudes, in order to become at least standard to prepare them for conversion. They need to go through a conversion process that's not necessarily a conversion process of the Holy Spirit, but just to become decent with one another. As my aunt said again, she says, we have thumbed our nose at God so long that the devil just can't let us go. The harvest is plenteous. The laborers are few. A work perhaps could be done in a totalitarian land. The Apostle Paul worked in a totalitarian government. He didn't do a work in a democracy where he was safe. We don't know what God intends, but certainly your prayers would be called for to see what could be done in the Soviet Union. At this point, I don't know. I don't know what our finances are. I don't know what Mr. Tkach feels should be done. I'm just giving you a report of what we had seen and what we had done. The harvest truly is plenteous. The laborers are few. Pray that God call laborers for the harvest. Thank you for listening to us today on The Cubic Report. We welcome you to share this podcast and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, and many other platforms. You can easily find us at any browser address box by typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. Remember, Cubic is spelled K-U-B-I-K. So we'd love to hear from you. Write to us at vcubic at gmail.com. That's V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.